Praise the Lord. Good morning. If you will, as as Ron read, turn to if you haven't already, First uh, Peter chapter one, and we will um, get through this here. Bear with me for a second. If you're visiting here with us today, I want to welcome you. I, I pray that your time here with us today will be a blessing and that you will be enriched by, by, uh, by the Word of God and by uh, what we proclaim here at Cornerstone in our faith and in our relationship with Him. Um, so, As Ron read in uh, in this in this scripture, um, we'll look at at uh, we've been going through uh, uh, the epistle of First Peter. Uh, a few weeks ago, we went through uh, the first portion of it, the first uh, verses one through twelve. Now we're starting at at verse thirteen, and uh, it says, "Therefore, let's stop there for just a minute." And I was always told that if you ever see in Scripture the word therefore, that we are supposed to look and see what it's there for. And, and Peter had set the table for us in verses 1 through 12, and we'll do a brief recap on that for those of you who weren't here the last time we went over that. Uh, so very briefly, um, as, we, as we look at, at verses 1 through 12, uh, we... we there was a, a greeting and an introduction by Peter, and then in verse two, he talks about their election. These these believers that were exiles uh, in in these foreign lands, and he was trying to be an encouragement to them in their in their uh, their isolation and their persecution of of the surrounding uh, communities that they were living in. They were dispersed through persecution and pressure uh, from from the Roman government. So he talked to them, and he's encouraging them. And in verse 2, he says he, he uh, reminded them of their election, their, their uh, sanctification, and the sprinkling of blood of Jesus. We'll, we'll cover that a little bit later in our text today. In verse 3, he talked about being born again and their rebirth into a new hope. Peter was trying to instill hope in them in the midst of their trials and suffering. In verse 4, he told them about the incorruptible inheritance received in heaven. And it, it uh, was a great encouragement to them because it began to build hope in these believers to get them through and to understand the circumstances behind their persecution and how to look forward to the great promise of, of, uh, of being united with Christ and Christ finally being revealed. Uh, in verse 5, he encouraged them that they're being kept by the power of God through faith for the salvation to come. In verses 6 through 9, he expressed to them uh, the, the, the great joy, which is inexpressible and full of glory. And in uh, 10 through 12, he reminded them uh, the honor of, of, of having been thought of in the Old Testament by the prophets and the angels who spoke as though they 
they spoke of the things of Christ to come, but they didn't really know because they didn't know about the details of what they were saying. They knew they were led by the Spirit to speak of this Messiah that was to come. We have the privilege now of, of uh, knowing about those things. And so there, there, there are mysteries ahead of us, but there's no mysteries about who that Messiah is and who these prophets were talking about and the fact that the angels even didn't know. Uh, they inquired as to what was going on. So, so that's what it's there for. Peter gave them the who, what, why, where, and when. And now, from verses 13 through the remainder of this epistle, he'll begin to tell us how, which is a very important aspect. How do we, how do we walk in light of everything that he's laid out for us? How do we walk and grow? How do we sustain and, and grow our hope and how do we look forward to the, the coming? Uh, what is our relationship? We, you know, he encourages us to take a deeper, more serious look at, at our lives and how, how uh, Christ has impacted our walk as Christians. So, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that, that first, that first uh, term there, to, uh, to prepare your minds, and in some translations your Bible might say to gird up your loins. And, and that um, um, gird up the loins of your mind, it's the idea um, of this phrase, it has a history in phrase, and what that meant was, like, prepare for action. Prepare to do some work, like workers, soldiers, they all wore these at that time, kind of long, flowing kind of robes. And and if they were going to be moving like, like a soldier in a battle, then they would gather up their robes, and they would they would bind it around their waist and gird their loins up, to not inhibit them, to allow them to freely move and to, to respond to whatever circumstances came their way. I should have made my text a little bit bigger. <laughs> but in a sense, it's like rolling up your sleeves. That's, that's the term that's used there. So he's preparing them for that. It says, gird up your loins to your minds to get rid of loose, sloppy thinking to bring the rational and reflective powers of your mind under control. It means to control what you think about, those things you decide to set your mind upon. So that, that's, that's an encouragement that we, that we have to be ready for action. When, if we are God's and he compels us to move and compels us to move forward in our faith or he uses us in that manner, we mentally need to be uh, sharp and and focused and not have a lot of distractions around us and be willing to respond to God's call. Ephesians 6.14 uh, says, Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So we find this example in other places in scripture too. Um, Colossians 3 verse 2 says, Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. And Luke 12.35 says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. 
And even in the Old Testament, where this came from, in the book of Exodus, um, uh, they're, they're preparing, they're being told how to prepare for the Passover. And during this process of, of this Passover celebration and the rituals that come along with that, um, in Exodus 12, 11, it says, In this manner you shall eat it, meaning the, the, the lamb, the food, there was some food and, uh, and like, it was, it was very detailed about the way they should conduct themselves through the ceremony to prepare for it. And he tells them to, you shall eat this food, this lamb, uh, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So it, it continues that same thing, uh, that same theme about being ready for action, being ready to move when God calls. And we must also be sober, it says in that verse. And being, being spiritually sober-minded, I mean, being sober, of course, the first thing you think of is alcohol, right? Well, it's not what they're talking about here, but it's kind of the same principle. I mean, alcohol can fog our, our, our uh, perception and our judgment. And so we need to keep clear minds, clear spiritual thinking, and not be clouded, not allow the effects of the world to uh, cloud our judgment. So we need to be sober-minded, and we need to gird our minds and strengthen our minds and clarify uh, our walk with Christ and take a serious look at our relationship with Christ and life in general. Steadfastness, clarity of mind, and moral decisiveness come along with that. We must have our priorities in proper order and not allow ourselves to be intoxicated by the various allurements of this world. It denotes a condition that from every other form of mental and spiritual loss of self-control. And then as he moves on through this, he says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean, to set your hope fully? It means, it means to set your hope perfectly, unchangeably, without doubt and despondency. As the NASV puts it, it's your hope complete, fix your hope completely on the grace. Therefore, Peter's exhorting us to make, to make our hope one that is complete, strong, and unwavering. And that was a major theme during, during the verses 1 through 12. He was trying to remind them of the hope that they would, they would need to keep with them to move through the struggles that they would face. Um, and it's our duty as Christians to cultivate that hope. Uh, we have a duty to develop and fortify our hope, just as we need to cultivate patience, self-control, etc. So we need to cultivate our hope. For without hope, uh, for without a hope that is strong, our faith may waver. We are subject to fear, doubt, and depression. And what is the focus of our hope to be? Well, Scripture indicates that, that uh, the coming of our Lord Jesus and the wonderful grace that he will bring is the foundation of that hope that we move forward with in our walk as Christians. The wonderful praise, honor, and glory that, that uh, we shall receive when he comes because he will come to reward us for works and he will also come to judge us for our works as well. It's a, it's a two-sided effect there. But 
if, if we truly understand grace, when, when we receive any reward, the crowns that the Bible talks about, the crowns of our reward for our faithfulness will be laid at his feet because of the grace that he's extended to us. Uh, the completeness, the complete and final salvation of our souls from sin and its effects. That's another reason for us to grow in our hope and, and, uh, and to focus on that when we look forward. This life of sin that we struggle with every day will be gone. We will be perfected in him. We will be um, able to see him in his full glory and uh, when he comes. The receiving of our wonderful inheritance, which is incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away. Another aspect of the hope that these folks, that these exiles, that these pilgrims uh, needed to hear so desperately, and Peter exhorts them and encourages them with those words. And the fact remains that true hope resides beyond this present darkness in our lives. No matter what we're going through, no matter what struggles you face personally, what struggles we face corporately as a church or as a community or as a country, true hope, our true hope that lasts, that means something, resides beyond the darkness that we experience and the trials that come our way. And he goes further and he talks uh, further on. He says, and on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter has, Peter has told us a lot about God's grace. He greeted us with grace in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. And he told us that grace that came to us in Jesus, predicted by the prophets of old in 1 Peter 1, chapter 10. Now he goes further, writing that the grace that is to be brought to you when Jesus comes back, the only way we will be able to stand before Jesus on that day is because of the unmerited favor and, and, and that he will give to us. Paul spoke of this in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 9, speaking in his prayer to Christ to ask him to relieve him of this burden that he had, this thorn in his side, uh, it's not really clearly indicated what that is. There's a lot of speculation about that. But in what he was praying to God, that he would be relieved of, of this burden, this trial. And the response from Christ was, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So when we struggle through our trials, that's an opportunity for God to show his power in our lives. So we look at trials, we don't like them. We don't like these trials that come our way, but it is, it is a, ultimately a healthy thing for us to go through this process because it turns our attention and our, and our, our love and our affection towards Christ. We rely on him more and more through this process of our trials. So it is in our weakness that his, tri that his power is revealed so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, is what he finished with. Grace isn't just for the past. 
when we first, like when we first came to Christ, you know, we, we experienced the grace of the present at that time or at, at when, whenever we became a Christian. If you've made that confession of, of, of faith and accepted Christ and repented of your sins, then we partake of that grace at that time, no matter how long. For me, it's been a long time. I'm 66 years old. So that, that grace that initially came uh, for me is, is in the past. And we also, um, it is, uh, it isn't only for the, for the present uh, where we live each moment standing in his grace. We still each day rely, even in our, our daily walk in the present, we rely, we look to God's grace to sustain us through our own weaknesses and failures and, and our own sin. Um, uh, Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 2 says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It is also for the future. Grace is for the future. When, when the grace will be brought to us, it says, uh, God has only just begun to show us the riches of his grace. There will come a time when we're perfected that we will not actively need because we will be perfected. We will see. We, sin will be eliminated from our lives. But I think, I think our spirits will still be um, uh, aware of, of the value of that grace and, and the place that it holds in our lives and it held in our lives. And we will be forever grateful because it will finally reach its full um, full realization and completeness when Christ comes and we are with him in his presence and, and perfected in our spirits. Um, and we'll move on to verse 14. I know that was a lot for verse 13, but he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Romans 12.2 also mentions this, says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For Christians are not to be conformists. We're not to... Uh, allow the world to influence in that way where we begin to act like them. We are to be true nonconformists. And really, in a sense, we're to be transformists because, because our lives have been transformed by the power of God and the love of Christ and, and everything that comes along with this Christian walk. If, if our lives have been transformed by that and, and, and everything has changed, then we should also be declaring that to a lost and dying world, that transformation. We should be the examples of that transformation and a reflection of God's presence in our lives. And that should serve to transform not only our lives, but the lives of the people that we care about and that we love and that we work with and we interact with on a daily basis. We should be endeavoring to, to do our part to be an accurate reflection of, of Christ so that their lives can also be transformed by the power of the gospel. So we should be transformers. We are not to conform to our former lusts, it says, uh, 
the world conforms in a, in a uh, the word conform or fashion in some uh, translations in the King James Version, it uses fashion, means to conform oneself, uh, one's mind and character to another's pattern, not conforming. So we're not to conform our pattern of life to another's pattern of life or the world's example, which is kind of dark right now. There's not a lot uh, going on right now that, that is encouraging except for what we read in God's word and our lives together as believers in Christ. The former lust that he talks about refer to the evil desires and the behavior in which we once engaged and in which the world continues to engage. In essence, then, Peter is saying, don't act like you once did or like those still in the world. Do not adopt their sinful habits, mannerisms, dress, and speech, which you did before you became Christians. We remember those days. We, we remember them um, most often, not in a positive way. I know that applies to my life. Uh, before I came to Christ, I made a lot of errors, mistakes. There's a lot of memories that stick with us from our past, and we need to not uh, abandon We need to keep a mindful presence of, of what we used to be in order to help propel us by faith into what God is transforming us to be by his word and by his love for us and his example set by those uh, believers that we read about in this, in this text. Um, verse, uh, next uh, portion of scripture is verses 15 and 16 where it says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. There is no some of your conduct. There is no, like when we think it, we should act a certain way or when it, when it works out for us. The word of God says we should be holy as he is holy in all of our conduct. So that's a pretty high bar to set. It's a high standard, but it gives us something to shoot for. Verse 16 says, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Uh, a reference to uh, an Old Testament scripture. And I, I believe it was in Leviticus. Um, the main idea uh, behind holiness is not moral purity, but it is the idea of apartness. And that's kind of what that, that means, that holiness, God, God is holy. We, we say that, we speak those words. And he is holy in every aspect, but what that means is he's apart from his creation. He's apart from everything um, that we are, in a sense, and he is separate and he is holy. And, and that's the reference here that we're being called as he is to be separate or set apart. It, sanctification, it has its roots in the word sanctification, to be set apart. Um, the idea is that God is separate, different from his creation, both in his essential nature and in the perfection of his attributes. But instead of uh, building a wall around his apartness, he doesn't, you know, he didn't build a wall and we're isolated and we have no relationship. He's so far removed from us that, that we don't have that connection with him. God calls us to come to him and share in this apartness. We must learn from that example and also emulate that that holiness in our life by separating ourselves 
And being separate means that, you know, the world will see our conduct as not conforming to the example that they have set for us. It's a very important aspect of our walk in, in, as Christians and our love for Christ to emulate him. They say that, that imitation is a serious form of, of flattery. And I think in a sense, we could apply that same idea here. We are to be imitators of God in a sense by, by our separateness, by our being set apart and sanctified in our walk with Christ. Um, uh, and Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And, and the book of Leviticus had a lot to say about, about holiness. And I will just read uh, a couple of scriptures. Leviticus uh, 18.30 uh, says, uh, So keep, keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. So he's encouraging the Old Testament uh, people to not to be involved, not to be enveloped by their culture and their world, but to be separate, to be holy. Further on in chapter 20, verses 7 and 8 of Leviticus, it says, Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Verse 8, Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And the word consecrate is, uh, uh, in Hebrew, is kadash. That's what that means. And what it, the uh, description of that is to consecrate, sanctify, to prepare, to dedicate, hallowed, to be holy, to be sanctified and separate. Moving on to verse 17. It says, And you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So the first part, and if you call on him as Father. This is a very important part. Or at least it was important to me uh, to, to understand a little bit more about this particular portion of scripture. Uh, if we as Christians call on a holy God, presumably for help, we must understand that we call on God who shows no partiality and will so judge our conduct. This makes a working, sober, holy walk all the more important. The believer who knows God and that he judges the works of all his children will fairly uh, his uh, judges the works of his children fairly will respect God and his evaluation of his life and long to honor his heavenly father uh, we must recognize that all sin is a violation of that relationship and I want to kind of like dig into this a little bit deeper and pause here for a minute and talk about the, the example that's set for us if we call God as father there's, there's a in the, old, in the uh, ancient times, fatherhood, uh, it was a patriarchal society, and the fathers led in many different ways. They, their word was final, and, and uh, they exhibited leadership in so many different ways. There was uh, economic leadership in his family. There was, there was uh, financial leadership. There was work that, that he, uh, wealth that was accumulated, and, 
Everything that he said, he was the one they looked to. And that's the way it is with us and our Heavenly Father, isn't it? We look to him for everything. We look to him for guidance. We look to him for encouragement. We look to him for strength. We look to him for hope. We, we look to him prov to provide for us in so many different aspects of our, our walk, not just the material, but the spiritual wealth that we have inside of us. So that that relationship that we have with our fathers or with our heavenly father should actually be a reflection of our lives here with our families. As, as, uh, as fathers, you know, we have a huge responsibility um, um, it's not always easy. It's difficult to, to be that example and to look and be consistent in our walk with Christ and our adherence to the word of God. But with Father's Day coming up, um, I thought it might be uh, important to kind of focus a little bit on this. And I, I wanted to share with you a website that I found. Uh, it's called allprodads.com. And if anybody, especially you fathers or you young men, uh, that look to be or that, that will be fathers eventually. Um, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, very well done uh, organization that is encouraging uh, to us as men. Um, but I don't want the women to feel left out because this organization also has a, an aspect of it that is called imoms.com. Uh, the website is allprodads.com, and it's made up of uh, a lot of uh, professional athletes. Donnie Junji, who was a professional uh, football and NFL coach. Many former NFL players are part of this organization, and, it's, and uh, they put out a thing on their website. And I'd like to read briefly, I won't go into all of it, but the 10 things that Scripture says about being a father. So I hope we can take this with us, and I hope that you will look into it a little bit further and look into as, as men, as husbands, as fathers, as potential fathers. It's, it's a wealth of information and a great encouragement. Uh, so the 10 things. Number one, and I'll give you scripture references because every one of these is, is referenced in scripture, obviously. But you can read the details in that if you look it up. Number one. Be your child's first teacher. And the scripture they, they used on that was Proverbs 22, verse 8. Number two, dads need to exemplify a good life. And the scripture that they use there, and it says, well, let me read it. Scripture teaches that who we are and how we live is like a letter from God. The word says we're living epistles known and read of all men. So that, that is a huge responsibility as teachers uh, that, we, uh, that we exemplify that by our conduct in our life. Our kids uh, need to read that letter in us. Number three, provide for your family. And I'll, uh, one, one comment that they put here on that one, it says, for those of you struggling to find work, which is a common thing in this economy, with the uh, advent of everything that we've been through over the past couple of years, there's a lot of struggles going out there. So I don't want, and they don't want anyone to feel less than because of the fact that they may be out of work or struggling to provide. It, it, 
that's not the point here, and, and we, they wanted to encourage. So it says, uh, for those of you struggling to find work, don't get down on yourself. Now, this idea is more about your heart and desire. Being a father who provides covers more than rent and food. As dads, it's our responsibility to make sure our family's needs are addressed across the board. Um, be encouraged and look for ways to give your family, even when it's hard, financially. So I just wanted to do that one out, put that one out there. Number four, good dads discipline their children. This aspect of discipline is one of the points because uh, we'll, we'll find that in our next portion of Scripture and in this portion of Scripture that, that God judges impartially good and bad. So there is a fear that goes along with that, but he judges impartially. Dads spend time with their children, and it's not empty time. And the scripture reference is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Compassion is a dad's characteristic. If we should all have that in its abundance, we would be better off as fathers and husbands. Um, compassion is, is much needed. And Psalms 103, verse 13 is where they, they get that encouragement from. Put your money where your mouth is. Not in those exact words, but uh, James 1.22 instructs us not only to be hearers of God's word, but doers also. Don't provoke your children. And Ephesians 6, uh, verse 4, is, is the reference for that scripture. Dads never give up on their kids. And you look to Luke 15, verses 20 through 24, you can find inspiration for that. Dads pray for their children in First Chronicles 29:19. And what, what I would hope to do is I will print this out in its entirety and I'll have it available uh, for the upcoming celebration of Father's Day. Uh, if you guys want to look into it, um, we'll, we'll make that available so that you can look at it on your own time and be encouraged by that. Carrying on. We are to conduct ourselves in fear, as I mentioned in that one, that one portion. Peter gives two reasons, reasons for such fear. Uh, he will not be partial or without partiality. He will be personal. He judges according to each one's work, good or bad. That's just the plain facts. I mean, as we walk, of course we want our works to be Christ-glorifying and spiritually strengthening, but we want what we do to be an accurate reflection of God's love for us and his relationship with us. But we're not perfect. We're, we make mistakes. We struggle for the wrong reasons. We may do things for the wrong motivation. And, and sometimes that can be a difficult thing because we do things out of maybe self, selfishness or self-preservation or for our own needs or desires. But if we purify those, those motives, we have a lot less. We eliminate that fear. But it is healthy to serve God with an understanding of what that fear is and, and that that should be reigning in the back of our minds, not at the forefront. The forefront of our minds should be holding on to the graces, the love, the, the encouragement, and the rich uh, richness of our relationship with him and moving forward in our faith. 
That should be forefront in our mind, but fear should never leave us. Um, no one receives special favors. So good, bad, or indifferent, the playing field is level. We all will face that no matter who we are, no matter what we do, whether you're standing up here or whether you're sitting out there or whether you, no matter what you do in life, we will all be judged impartially and by the same, by the, that's the only way God can do it. That is fair judgment. That is true judgment for us, that he judges fairly. We should all be conducting ourselves in a manner that recognizes and appreciates the price that was paid for our redemption and what the consequences is for lawless behavior. Because you know, we believe that our salvation is secure for sure, but if Turn with me in your Bibles or your devices to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, and I think we'll see some pretty sobering uh, portions of Scripture here that will, if we, if we go there and we apply this to our lives, it will help strengthen us and it will give us that healthy perspective because we have to maintain this. So reading on, it says, verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified or set apart and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall under the hands of a living God. Ephesians 4.30 also says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Pretty, pretty sobering words that we have to hold on to and keep in the back of our minds. We find joy in the fact that Christ has redeemed us. He's given us promise of heaven, promise of forgiveness. He has forgiven us of our sins past, present, and future, but we should be careful not to take advantage of that grace. And I think that that is what it talks about in this scripture when it says, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which uh, he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. We cannot take advantage of God's grace. We must endeavor to walk holy and separate lives. We must endeavor to walk in spiritual um, awareness of where we are and who we serve and who owns us. Which, which brings us to our next portion of Scripture. In uh, verses 18 through 21, also another significant portion of Scripture uh, in this, in this uh, context. Knowing, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, 
not with perishable things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This word ransomed, let's take a little bit closer at that. A ransom is to buy back someone from bondage by the payment of a price. You know, we all know about kidnapping, paying a ransom. They are purchasing the freedom of that captive, that person who is being held captive. The person pays the ransom, the captive is, is released. And a great debt, in, in a sense, is owed for that. Uh, because a great price was paid for that freedom. The same thing applies to us in our, in our relationship with Christ. His shed blood on the cross was a ransom that was paid on our behalf. It freed us from a life of bondage and sin that would lead to eternal damnation and hell. It freed us and gave us eternal life with him in glory, ultimately, permanently, and forever fixed in our future. What a great debt we owe to a God who's paid that price on our behalf. I'm sorry, but it, 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 bring, it wells up emotions in me to understand the depth of that price that was paid and the importance that that brings into our life. The idea that we belong to him, he owns us. Lock, stock, and barrel. He paid for us. He paid for our freedom. We owe him so much that we can never repay. But it is through our walk with him, our dedication to him, our commitment to walk holy lives, our commitment to the word of God. Every day is the way that we find some way to recognize the price that was paid for us. And, and it encourages us to be ready to move like we spoke about at the beginning of this chapter. To have our lures going, our gird, our, our waist, our, our girds, our loins gird about us, ready for action, ready to move. Because when the man, the God who loves us and owns everything in us, calls us into action, we have to be ready to respond. He owns us. There's no doubt about that. Um, Ephesians 1 7 also expands on this a little bit. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, his shed blood on the cross. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, the grace that was shed on our behalf, the grace that is shed abroad in our lives, removed a death sentence from us. And we are and should be thankful and, and, and uh, uh, do everything we can to recognize that in our lives and live a life that brings glory to our God for that sacrifice. Uh, Titus 2, chapter 14, or chapter 2, verse 14, says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself 
because he owns us, we belong to him to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I think that pretty well sums up that idea in my mind in that particular scripture. We were not redeemed from our sins with silver or gold, carrying on in this scripture, but only by the precious blood of Christ. You know, silver and gold have great value in our society. Uh, one of the things uh, that I have learned to do and uh, to be content in Ridgecrest is to find things to do that keep me occupied. And one of the things that I enjoy doing as a part-time fun thing to do is to go out and gold prospecting. Uh, the Allen family boys went with us, Tim and the boys, and we went out one time and did a little bit of prospecting, some panning. But but what that hobby of mine has done is it, it, it it's brought an awareness of the true nature of gold. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about gold and its value, but it also talks about it in comparison with the riches that we have in Christ. And, and the Bible also tells us that in the end in heaven, that no matter how valuable and imperishable and, and indestructive gold seems to be, the nature of it in the refining process, I mean, the more you refine it uh, by different methods, the more pure it becomes. It can almost never be uh, uh, eliminated. You can take solid gold and it can be liquefied into its molecular form, to its most basic molecular uh, substance, but it never goes away. It doesn't go away. But here, it, it indicates that even with that value, compared to the value that was paid by the blood of Christ shed on the cross for us at Calvary, gold is worthless, and it will perish. But, but, but that price is priceless. The Bible says streets will be paved with gold. That's how little value it will have in heaven, that the very streets we walk on will be paved with gold. So even though it's valuable, the precious blood of Christ, the price paid for us was much more valuable. Um, moving on to verse, uh, verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for our sakes, for the sake of you, it says. The work of Jesus was not a, a, plan, developed late in, a plan developed late in life in the course of redemption. It was foreordained before the foundation of the world through though it was, it was made evident in these last times. The plan of God's salvation for us was existent beforehand, as it says. Uh, we, he didn't, it wasn't an oops. It wasn't like, oh, I messed up. These guys, you know, kind of went a different way than I was expecting. No, he chose Christ before the foundation of the world to be our Redeemer, to be our, our Lord and our Savior and to pay this price it was foreordained by God. So we know that this, no matter what we think about how we perceive it, it is God's plan. The work of Jesus, uh, well, I'm sorry, in Acts 2.23 elaborates on this. It says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That was Peter giving his very first sermon 
to the Jews at the synagogue after the day of Pentecost, his first sermon. It was a scathing, powerful sermon, but he indicated to those Old Testament uh, scribes and Pharisees and the peoples he was preaching to about, about the fact that it goes beyond this present point. It, it goes to the past from the very beginning. First Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 9 uh, says, Who saved us and called us uh, to a holy calling, not because of our works, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Let's look a little bit for the sake of you. The entire plan of redemption is for those who believe in God, uh, though even their belief is through him. Those who believe in God are not disappointed because their faith and hope has been substantiated by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That's what we look forward to. Our, our hope and our faith is, is substantiated in the resurrection of Christ. He will be, he, he as our deliverer, will be our God and our Savior. We will see him face to face. That was the encouragement that Peter was giving these people as he told them what they would be going through and how to strengthen their walk. He, he pointed them to the resurrection as that, as that foundation and that strength, a way to bolster their hope, to look forward to the coming of Christ. That's uh oh God through the ascension returned Christ to glory and had with him as he had with him before the world began. Um oh I'm sorry, did I skip twenty one? Let me go to twenty one. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory? so that your faith and hope are in God. Everything points to God in this. And, and uh, God, through the ascension, returned Christ to the glory he had with him before the world began. And Jesus, in John chapter 17, in uh, the what is called the high priestly prayer, and if you've never read chapter 17 of the Gospel of John, I highly recommend it. It's deep. It's a deep prayer that Christ made to God. I believe it was the day before the evening of his crucifixion. And he prayed to God. And one of the things that he prayed to God for himself personally, it's the only time that in Scripture where it's revealed that Christ prayed in this manner. But he was speaking to God and he said, in, uh, in 17 verses 4 and 5, he said, I glorified you on earth, which was why he came, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your, pre your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So God is glorified. He is with him. Uh, the resurrection is, and is, is where he was he ascended, was returned to glory, sits at the right, the right hand of God at the judgment seat, uh, making intercession for us, praying for us to strengthen our walk and to encourage us. Verse 22, 
having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love and a love uh, we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Brotherly love. The, the, um, the, the first uh, portion of that where he talks about that brotherly love, that is a word uh, in Greek, it's Philadelphia, which is brotherly love. The second use that he uses is agape love. It's, a, it's an agape love. And in that, he, he's indicating that a sincere brotherly love, a love that we have for each other, as believers in Christ, the love that's cultivated in this fellowship and in other churches and in other um, groups and families of Christ, um, it, is, it is there, like our fellowship meal, coming together for communion to share, um, to share this together as a family, draws us closer together. It increases our love for one another. And out of that seedbed of that love that we have, comes the ability through Christ to be able to love with the agape love, which is love without limits. And the, the, one of the terms um, uh, here is, uh, um, anyway, let me carry on. I, I think I'm going to get a little ahead of myself there. Um, holy living is incomplete, if it is not accompanied by love, to be Christian means to have a sincere love for the brethren. But we are encouraged to exercise that love fervently. We must have a fervent love. And that term, that was the term I was looking for, is a, is a love that is stretched to the limits. I've seen the example of that in this particular fellowship with the struggles that the Ortiz has had and the way that this uh, body of believers and, and some individuals in, in, in particular have reached out to this family to, to show love and comfort and, and do what they can, even if it's just to be there to grieve with them. It's an awesome example of this kind of love that is stretched to the limit. It says that... that, uh, that um, that we have been born again, not by a perishable seed, by imperishable, through the living, abiding word of God. And it's not of imperishable seed, but of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living, abiding word of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The Holy Spirit uses um, the word to produce life. It is the truth of the gospel that saves. Nearing the end of this, it goes on um, in verse 24 and 25. It says, For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like, uh, like the, the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And we know that, right? If you, when we had this rain, how beautiful was the desert? How beautiful and green, it's still a little bit green, but the flowers are quickly fading. And as time progresses, and we know what happens, it gets hot in Ridgecrest, we will see a transition. 
The flowers will fade. The grass will withers. But the word of God that we trust, that we look to, to be encouraged by, to be strengthened by, to encourage us in our hope, will last forever. And in, in conclusion here, it says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you, not by me, but by them. This is the good news that we have, that we take with us. When we leave here, we take the good news of the gospel here with us. So I want to encourage you to do that especially at this time we come together to communion. It's a time of reflection. It's a time where we, we take an inner look at our walk in Christ, where we, we attempt to evaluate our walk and purge ourselves of the sin that exists within us. We, we can't eliminate it completely, but we can constantly be in the process of renewing this blood covenant that we have with the, the covenant that was paid Christ is our covenant, but we have covenanted to be obedient to Christ because of what's been paid for us, the great price. He owns us. We are to be obedient to him. Amen? Amen. All right. What have we learned from this? I'll give you just a couple of brief takeaways. The first one is the acquisition of hope and a steadfast pursuit of holiness in our walk of faith are vital building blocks upon the foundation established by our chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And we read in that, or we, we sang in that song about Christ is our cornerstone. The steadfast pursuit on our behalf is something that builds upon that foundation that exists on Christ. We must have a right perspective of the value of our great gift of salvation and eternal life in him through his sacrifice and shed blood. We have to have a right perspective about our walk, who he is, how we respond to that. We must hold fast to our hope of the promised complete redemption in Christ when he returns. We must live a life of obedience to our Heavenly Father. We must see our sin as a violation of a blood covenant and an offense to a holy God. We must live a life in keeping with his holy word. We must remember who owns us. And we must tell the world about him. God bless you and thank you very much.